Hello, and welcome to another author event at the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and today we were delighted to have with us a dazzling quartet of Kensington authors, Diane Freeman, Maddie Day, Carlene O'Connor, and Rosemary Simpson. Before we begin, thank you. Uh, before we begin, I just have a brief commercial message. If this is your first time attending an event here, either virtually or in person, please do think about signing up for the store's e-newsletter. It's the best way to find out which authors are coming, which books we have coming into the store. It's real easy to do. Either go online to the Poison Pen, or if you're here in person, stop up front. We'll be happy to sign you up. Now I'd like to welcome Diane, Maddie, Carlene, and Rosemary. My first question to each of you is I'm always fascinated by how an author got to where they are because there's always a backstory. So I'm going to ask you a little bit to tell us a little bit about yourself before you became a published author. Why don't we start with you, Rosemary? Okay, so um, my first book, written a thousand years ago, was actually supposed to be my PhD dissertation. But the subject was too good to waste on an academic PhD dissertation that nobody was going to read anyway. And so I wrote a humongous historical novel about the Fourth Crusade. To date, I am still the only novelist who has written a novel purely of the Fourth Crusade. Why was I able to do that? Because I had spent thousands of hours doing all the research for the PhD dissertation. And I went down into the basement of the Emory University Library. And how I ever got down there, I don't know. They should have stopped me, but I got down there. And I found in a box that I shouldn't have been looking at an uncut version of one of the Chronicles that had been published in France in the 1800s. Nobody had read it. Some historian at Emory bought it for the university, but nobody had read it. I was absolutely captured. So that's, that's how I became a novelist, because history was too good to waste on academia. I mean, I I mean, I'm indebted to all the academicians, indebted to them, absolutely. But I found that I spiraled down into the world of, this was the um, 1204. So that was quite a bit back in history. But I found that I, f I found a home in history and in historical fiction. That's great. Carlene, what about you? If I understand correctly, you come from a long line of storytellers? <laughs> yes. Uh, everybody in my family likes to tell a good tale. <laughs> in fact, they're really good oral storytellers, and my mom is really terrific at it. My dad was, too. Um, I was always better writing things down. I guess I had to think things through. But my first short story was when I was four years old, um, The Boy and the Mouse. <laughs> oh, boy, said The Boy and Mouse. Oh, boy, said the mouse, a oh boy. That's just a little teaser. Um, and then I, I trained as an actress, and it was in 2004 that it was around this time of year, and it was a New Year's goal of mine to write a novel. Um, I had just read a novel that I thought was really bad, and thank goodness I have no idea what it was. And if, if I did, now that I know how hard it is to write one, I wouldn't put them under the bus. But at the time, I was frustrated. I thought, how did this get published? You know, sometimes you can read a book that's so good, you get intimidated, and you're like, oh, I'm never going to write that good. I might as well not even try. Well, if you want to write and you have that tendency, then read a book you hate <laughs> and just think, okay, I thought, well, I can do that. So it was a New Year's goal, and... 
I actually found out quickly the next year that I hadn't finished it. And I thought, well, maybe I have a psychological problem and I can't finish, you know, <laughs> my writing. Um, but I Googled and found an online course that actually helped me kind of figure out what I was doing that was stopping me from finishing things. And a year later, I had the novel completed. And just kind of on a lark, I queried agents. And I did get an agent. And then he sold it to my current publisher, um, Kensington. And that's been about 17 years now that I've been writing for them. Wow. That's great. Um, what about you, Maddie? Because if I understand correctly, when most people were earning money babysitting, you got paid for writing? Well, <laughs> I, I, wrote, I wrote stories constantly as a child, constantly, feverishly. And when I was nine, I entered the Viking Girl in a, a children's fiction contest for the Pasadena Star News, and I won, and they paid me $2. Wow. <laughs> That's my first paid work of fiction. Um, but then I abandoned fiction for some decades. I did other kinds of writing, academic writing, uh, technical writing, freelance journalism, but I didn't get back to writing a novel till both my sons went off to, well, my younger son went off to kindergarten. My older son's right there. Wave hi, Alan. <laughs> um, and I had every morning to myself for the first time since I had kids because I was home with them for a few years. And I loved reading cozy mysteries and I started writing one set on a farm. I happened to have an organic farm at the time. Um, Anyway, that ended up being my second published novel uh, some years later. But um, that's how I got back to it. And I wish I hadn't taken so long to get back to fiction. <laughs> what about you, Diane? How does a career in finance lead to writing? Yeah, I was an accountant for 30 years. And you can only be so creative in accounting <laughs> before you get in trouble. <laughs> And pretty much everybody I knew who was in my career either did a hobby that was very physical or very creative. And I went down the very creative side. And um, I, Carlene's family, I would just tell a story, but I would just tell it to myself. So I'd write what I would now call first drafts. But I wrote a first draft, and then I'd go back to reading. And then, oh, okay, I want to write again. So I'd write another first draft. I mean, and they all just got pitched. I have no idea if they were any good or not. They were first drafts, so they probably weren't. Then, like Edith, a long time passed, and I retired and decided I would write beyond that first draft. I would go ahead and try to revise it and see if I could get it to something somebody else would want to read. And I, I, I wrote the first Countess of Harley mystery and revised and revised and had family and friends all read it. And then I just didn't know what to do. And I found out about a contest that unfortunately no longer exists called Pitch Wars. And what happens with that is you enter your first chapter and you hope that you will get a mentor, somebody who is either a published author or works in the industry and can help you polish it to a point where it's ready to be submitted. And I won. I got an, uh, a mentor. She worked with me, I think at that time it was six weeks. And then we went into what's called the author or the agent showcase, where instead of normally you would submit your manuscript to an agent, and hope that they read it. In this case, there was a pitch, a 50-word pitch, and your first page, 
and agents were all invited to view these. I think there were like 200 of us in that year of pitch wars. So agents were invited to view these, and then they would request whether they wanted to see anything further. So I started, I finished the book probably around July, got into pitch wars in August. The agent showcase was the 1st of November. I had an offer from an agent for representation on November 30th. And, you know, I was talking to my husband, who was right there, and I was like, gosh, should I do this? You know, I don't, I mean, she's going to put a lot of effort into this, and it'll never sell, you know. He's do it, do it. So I, I signed a contract with her. We went through another round of revisions, and then she put it out. Let me think about this. She sent it out to editors, I don't know, January 15th. We had an offer January 17th. And then he wanted three books. And again, I'm talking to my husband. I'm like, God, I can't do this. Three, it took me two years, two and a half years to write the first book. He wants another book in 11 months. What am I going to do? He's like, you've got to do this. Do it. It's your dream. Just do it. And it is my dream. And I've just loved it. It's been a wonderful second career. And that's how it happened for me. That's great. Um, aren't supportive spouses the worst? Yeah. <laughs> they make you do everything right. What can you tell us about your new book? And we'll start with you, Diane. Um, after six books, the new one coming... Are you talking about this one? The one we have today, and we'll get to the other Okay, one. okay. This is book six. Uh, a newlywed's guide to fortune and murder uh, finds Francis doing a favor for an old friend. Uh, this goes back to when she was married to Reggie and lived in uh, Harley Manor. This was a neighbor of hers who was kind to her. She's really kind of a crotchety old woman, but Frances decides she's going to do her a favor. And what she's going to do is present the woman, this is Miss Lady Wingate, she's going to present Lady Wingate's niece, Kate, at court. Uh, Lady Wingate can't do it herself because she's still in mourning for her late husband. When Frances goes to tea to meet Kate, um, she can see right away that there is something wrong with Lady Wingate. She's just very sickly. She looks terrible. She had seen her just a few months ago at her husband's funeral, and the woman was still very energetic. As she works more and more with Kate and has more interaction with the family, she starts to see that this woman is definitely under the influence of a drug, probably laudanum. And the question is, is she self-medicating? Is one of the family trying to keep her sedated, so to speak, or is Kate, who stands to inherit, actually trying to kill her? So that's Francis's little endeavor for this book. What about you, Maddie? You're starting a new series? Yes, I'm starting a new series. Is this on? It sounds on? Okay. Um, the C.C. Barton Mysteries, this is uh, Murder Uncorked, is the first book. Um, and uh, C.C. has moved north from Pasadena to the Alexander Valley, north of San Francisco, which is a very rich wine country um, area. Um, it's like Napa's less known little sister, but makes better wine. Um <laughs> And her her twin sister, Allie, has lived there for a long time. He, she has twin boys who are 10 and runs a bed and breakfast and is a real estate agent. And she says to Cece, your daughter's in college. You're not doing much 
in Pasadena. Why don't you move to Colinas? Um, she moves up there. She gets a job managing the wine bar, Vino y Vida, which is in a historic adobe. And um, someone is found murdered who Cece has been publicly arguing with and having disagreeable email and phone conversations with. And she becomes a person of interest in this murder. Um, so that's the setup. Um, I'm a native Californian originally. I'm a fourth generation Californian, even though I've lived in Massachusetts now longer than California. And I absolutely am so happy to be writing a series set in my home state. Uh, and my uncle has a house in the Alexander Valley, a vacation home, and I've been there a lot. And um, it's, it's very, I just finished writing the second book. I'm polishing the second book. So, yeah. Carlene, what can you tell us about Some of Us Are Looking? Well, it's the second book in a new series, although all of my mysteries can be read out of order. I get that question. Um, but it's set in Dingle, which is in County Kerry, along the wild Atlantic Way. And two protagonists in the story are Dr. Dimpna Wild, who's a local veterinarian, and Detective Inspector Cormac O'Brien. And for this mystery, it starts with a caravan of 20-somethings who are causing a bit of trouble in a nearby town trolley. And it's a confluence of a meteor shower happening that everybody's kind of excited about, um, a local old man who's complaining um, because he's always trying to protect wild fox who kept getting hit in the roadway, and he's complaining about this caravan of 20-somethings who, in his opinion, are up to no good. And when one of the members is found murdered and our local veterinarian gets involved because they have dogs and talking parrots, um, it becomes, you know, a little bit of a rabbit hole, um, pun intended, and if you read the book, you know why there's a little bit of a rabbit theme in there as well. So Ireland, animals, and murder. <laughs> Rosemary? So Murder Wears a Hidden Face is number eight in the Gilded Age mystery series. And I have to preface the explanation of it by saying that when I set out to write this series with great, great optimism, I said, I can write 10 books for the Gilded Age. I didn't have a contract for 10 books. I had a contract for two. Then I had a contract for three more, and then a contract for another two or three. Um, but because I'm interested in social issues, each book was going to be set in a social milieu that, my, that would envelop my, my protagonists. And I've tackled... Uh, the aftermath of Reconstruction, I've tackled laudanum addiction, all kinds of things. This particular one takes place in February 1891 in Chinatown, New York City. And the impetus for it was the aftermath of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was passed in 1882, is the only piece of legislation that went into law which specifically was aimed at an ethnic group. And what it said basically was that no Chinese laborer could enter the United States for 10 years, period. There were exemptions for diplomats and some students, but they were hard to get. If a and remember we brought Chinese in by the boatloads for the California gold fields and to build the Transcontinental Railroad. We paid them nothing, practically, zilch. And we wanted to get rid of them once we'd used them up, but they wouldn't go home. 
1875, the Page Act forbade women Chinese from entering the United States. Basically, it was written so that um, prost Chinese prostitutes couldn't enter the United States, but every woman of Chinese origin was considered a prostitute. So you have in San Francisco and in New York at this particular time, enclaves of Chinese bachelors who are never gonna go back to China, who have no female Chinese to marry, it is a terrible, terrible situation. Then you also have the beginning of the tongs and, and that type of thing. Okay, wonderful place to set a murder mystery. Um, so what I did is I had a, a new Chinese um, ambassador and a, a new Chinese attache, cultural attache, come to New York City to the Metropolitan Museum, which was brand new at the time, to open an exhibit of Chinese art. And they come to the museum. Of course, my protagonists are there. They have tickets to it. Um, they come to the museum, and you have this wonderful procession of people walking through the museum until somebody runs out of the crowd and stabs the attache, which means that the attache's wife and children lose their diplomatic status and will be sent back to China, where the Chinese government will probably execute at least the son, um, and the others will lose everything. So they have to disappear. And where are they going to disappear? Into Chinatown. That's a long explanation. <laughs> well, your books kind of have that um, long historical depth to them, Rosemary, which brings me to my next question. For each of you, you would think writing fiction, you don't have to do research for a book, but that's not actually true. So can you talk a little bit about the research involved for your new book? You've spoken about that, what sources you used, and even how do you research a setting like Ireland if you don't live there? So we'll start with you. Okay, so the first, and I, I say this every time I, I talk to people, I get up in the morning, I make a cup of coffee, I read the New York Times of 1891. I have a subscription to the New York Times, so I go to the archives, and I read. So I was reading around February of 1891 and, and so forth, and I read the whole paper. I read the ads, I read the editorials, I read the shipping notices, everything. And you would be amazed, or maybe not, to read how ethnic groups are portrayed and the language you could never, ever use today in a newspaper like the New York Times. So I was reading about, especially, there's a, a couple of things in here, there's um, about uh, Chinatown was having the New Year's celebration, and a lot of, let's see, ne'er-do-wells and young men who came for the alcohol uh, were coming to Chinatown to celebrate the Chinese New Year. And of course they got in fights and, and did all kinds of things like that. But I, that's how I start. I start with the New York Times because the series is set in New York City. Um, I have a lot, I have a great library at home of academic books and of course online is wonderful. I also read diaries and um, memoirs. Um, obviously I start with the, the, uh, the good academic books for the solid foundation. But then a lot of people wrote a lot of letters and diaries and things like this, and you can get absolutely lost in it. The danger for somebody writing historical fiction is that you'll start researching something, and before you know it, you've researched and researched, but you haven't written yet anything yet. You've got to stop researching and start writing. Carlene, what about you? How do you get Ireland so right? 
Um, I have been to Ireland a lot of times, but even before my first visit, um, I lived in New York City for 15 years, and all my friends were Irish. Um, there's also my great-grandmother came over from Ireland, and there's Irish on my, that's my maternal line, and there's Irish on my dad's side, too. So it was kind of in the culture um, from both parents. Um, but I, I do credit most of my research to my 15 years of, of sitting in Irish pubs in New York City. It was not a waste. Um, and, you know, picking up the stories and the lingo and, you know, it just was invaluable. And that was before I even knew I was going to be writing murder mystery set in Ireland. And then, of course, my visits to Ireland. And I, I still bug my Irish friends all the time. Um, in addition to that, books and internet. Um, during the pandemic, um, I had I was lucky enough that I had just been to Ireland in the fall of 2019. Um, but when I was writing the first book in the County Kerry series, no strangers here. It was during the pandemic, so obviously I had planned a trip and I couldn't go. Um, so it's a little bit geeky, but I had an Oculus Quest virtual reality headset. And if you've never tried one, they're, you know, find some teenager. They're really cool. Um, and I was able to actually see the exact location where I was going to drop the body and you can, there's an app on there that's part of Google Earth. So it lets you even kind of quote unquote walk around the area a bit. So I could see things I never would have known if I had just seen a picture of the area um, without actually having to go there. I could see, oh, it's really hard for a boat to get into that little section of beach. So they would have had to have a smaller, you know, kind of dinghy to get the body in. And um, I could see what single road was at the top of the cliff and where the nearest house was. And it was really cool. So is a combination of things, but nothing beats being there and nothing beats, you know, talking to the people who live there. Maddie, what about you? Other than drinking wine, how did you research? <laughs> your Such hard research going wine tasting in California. Um, well, that's part of it. Um, I, I'm fortunate, as I said, my uncle have, has this house that I've been going to for 50 years and uh, it's such a lovely area and you know, I'm a, as I said, I'm a Californian. I love it dry. I love being here. I love having mountains on the horizon and dry brush and those subtle shades of browns and dark and pale greens and that, that the desert gives you. I mean, it's not desert in Northern California, but there's, it's dry. It's very, very dry. Um, so I went out the first fall. I've been out three falls in a row. I was just there a month ago. And so I was doing research for this book the first time and then that I've been recently. And then the next year, when I went last year, I was fine tuning. And, and I get to just stay in this house, you know, without any my relatives there, usually for at least a few days, if not a week. One day, um, it's, it's up, in the, up in the hills overlooking Geyserville at the northern edge of the Alexander Valley. And one morning I woke up and I was out on this patio and that overlooks the valley and there was fog and then there the fog was rising so all i could see were the tops of a couple of hills it was stunning and then i went on a a tour of a production the kendall jackson wine production facility mm. with a friend of my uncle's who knows the production manager and she's a big cozy mystery fan this friend of my uncle's and she was going, Oh, look, a body would fit in that, in that, 
in that trailer of grapes. And look, oh, and there's like this conveyor belt that separates the sticks, you know, and she's up to you got a foot coming out there. It was great. And this this production manager was very sort of stoical. Mm. <laughs> anyway, so that and then but by the time we got out, the fog had burned off at 11. And that was that's not something you could ever Google. You could like you you really have to be there. Um, um, and and also, I think, like, observing what's the smell of the air and what plants are blooming or not blooming or in leaf. Um, what are the birds? You know, and I've lived in, Cal in Massachusetts a long time, and um, while I grew up sort of birding with my mother, um, I've forgotten a lot of the California birds, so that's great. And then another friend of my uncle's is a wine reviewer. She knows everything about wine. She invited me over for dinner. So all kinds of, of those kinds of research that, that I have connections. I'm fortunate to have those connections. Um, but also the history of the area, the Pomo Indians that are there, the, the black people who came and settled in the late um, 19th century um, you know, that you can get out of history books and, and cultural centers and stuff. So that's, it's been, it was fabulous to, it is always, it's always great to start a new series. This is, I think, the sixth new series I've started. And you get to design the whole world, the whole fictional world, and you get to figure out all those little real bits that, that make it come to life. Diane, other than Agatha Christie and Edith Wharton, how did you research for your series? Um, well, what what everybody has said so far has pretty much covered it. Um, newspapers are a great way to kind of uh, immerse yourself in the era, diaries, things of that nature, going there, as Edith says, where you can see, well, what time is it when the fog burns off? You know, so you can act so nothing replaces those things. But then when you start writing and you say, okay, they walked into the room and turned on the light, and you got to think, well, wait a minute. What room? Where are they? Do they have gas light? Do they have electric light? How do you turn it on? Oh, no. And that's when you jump in and you have to start Googling. And you, I generally start there and then work my way back into better documents that have uh, more details about things like that. Somebody mentioned to me, who is, who is beta reading a book, said, um, how come Frances always delivers messages? Why does she always give somebody a message to go, why doesn't she just pick up the phone? They had phones then, didn't they? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but you know, I don't see much in my research about them using the phones. Why not? So then I started digging. And in London, the phone service was terrible at that time. It took them well into the 1920s to have decent phone service. If you lived out in, in the country, you probably had better phone service than they had in London because they were trying to walk a line between private and public industry. And there was always a fight. And when you had a phone signal, there was this horrible static on the lines. You were probably going to be put, putting your call through for the local, through the local postmistress. So you'd have to wait until they're done with their regular business to come and take your call. So you'd call the postmistress, 
hang up the phone. You get a little ring when she's ready to talk to you. So then you can tell her who you need to speak to. Then you hang up the phone while she tries to get a hold of them. Then they get back and you get connected. And it's just faster, especially if you had servants, to just send someone with a message. So it's, it's those types of things, those little details that... Um, they're like gold when you find them. It's like, oh, wow, this is wonderful. So, yeah, all of this, and then we always have to stop our writing and look up certain details, too. My next question for you is your actual writing process, because as a reader, I would think if you're writing a mystery, you need to know what's going to happen. You need to know which clues to plant, who's to throw suspects, what suspects to throw in front of the reader, but it's a different process for every writer. How do you go about approaching your mysteries? And we'll start with you, Diane. For me, more importantly, my editor needs to know what's going to happen. So I have to give, I had, I had never used an outline before, and I had to actually try to find out how do you write a book outline, but he wanted an outline. And it made writing every book after book one a whole lot easier. It is, it is when you're writing a mystery, I tend to start by, I'm not going to go right to the very beginning, but once I'm, I know I'm, what I'm writing about, I tend to start by plotting the crime itself. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. And once I have that, then I can know who really is the suspect and who are just the red herrings and what do I want them to do to fall in the story and make you suspect them. So it's, it's a lot of plotting and then there's an outline and then I just write draft after draft. Again, I'll write that first draft just telling myself the story. And then the second draft is tightening all that, throwing in some scenes that um, will transition from one scene to the next, um, giving you more red herrings. Sometimes I change the culprit who actually did it. I don't think I've ever changed the victim. But just the fact that you have that, I have that basis. I really need the framework to set the story up on. And that seem to, that's how I do it. But yeah, everybody's different. Patty? We, all four of us, have the same editor at Kensington. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, my preferred way of writing is not to know what happens until I write it. I really don't want to know what happens before I write it. John wants a synopsis. <laughs> he would love 20 or 30 single-spaced pages. I hate writing synopses. I'm writing one right now for my 13th country store mystery. It kills me every time. I, the most I've ever given him is five double-spaced pages, and it about killed me. But he really wants it. And it's true that it helps to have that kind of sort of roadmap. It'll change even what I send him. It, but I have learned... I've sent probably 25 books to John by now, or maybe not, maybe 22 or so over the years. Um, if, if what I have sent him in the synopsis changes as I'm writing the book, I have to fix it and get it back to him because Kensington and most big publishers have such a long lead time. He's already giving 
the cover people and the brochure people that synopsis before I sometimes before I've started writing the book, and um, he, they need to know if something critical changed in as I was writing it. Um, I don't. I don't, but so I, I write sequentially. I, I get the victim. Once I have the, if it's not the first book in the series, I have my world, I've got my protagonist, I've got my cast of core characters. Um, and I, I decide on a victim. Sometimes I find a, figure out a new, a murder weapon I want to use, and then I figure out who would be killed by that. And then as I go, I might refer to my synopsis and I might not. I come up with three or four or five plausible suspects who would want that person gone, that victim. But if I'm ever, if, if things ever slow down a little, I'll go look at the synopsis, which I have forgotten all about, and I'll go, oh, she was going to do that now. That's a good idea. Let's write that scene. <laughs> and then that, you know, that keeps me going. I don't get, like, stuck much, but that if it, things are slowing down a little bit. Um, it helps, yeah. but I really I hate writing them. I just feel like I would be so bored writing the book if I know what's going to happen, which is why I don't want to know what happens before I write the book. But th every there's no one right way. If you're an aspiring writer out there, there's no one right way. I know brilliant, multi-published New York Times best-selling authors who plot everything ahead of time and some who don't plot anything ahead of time. And it, it all works if you can make it work. Carlene, what's your writing process like? Yeah, it's very similar to what both um, ladies have said. Um, and I didn't know we all had the same editor, which is wild until, until today. And yes, he does want those outlines. And um, I am also one of those writers that my first book was written without an outline. Now, I quickly realized when you do that, then that first book kind of becomes the outline and you might be rewriting a lot more. And murder mysteries, you know, do require a lot of pre-planning and plotting um, for me because you want to know what secrets all the suspects are hiding and who did it. And you have to have the backstory and timeline of the killer. So it, it's kind of like having all that down before you write the, the what's going on on top of it, you know, from the other people's perspectives. And John recently sent me, we don't write the cover copy, so the what's it about on the spine or the back of the book. They hire people that do that. And I'm working on book three in this County Carry series, and it's actually one of the most complicated plots I've ever tackled. So it took me a long time to figure out all the answers, and I only have like a couple months left. Now it's, I know the story so well now that you know I'll be able to pull it off. Um, but when he sent me back the cover copy that they wrote, based on my outline like a long time ago. He said, I love this cover copy, what do you think? And I read it and I'm like, well, it reads good, but none of this happens anymore. <laughs> it's, it's not my book anymore. So I had to you know, send kind of another quick outline to the person who was writing the cover copy to, to rewrite it to fit the book. So I just think it's kind of a funny dance, but there are times where I'm stuck and I'll say, okay, what did I say was gonna happen next? And that outline will really help. I also like index cards because I'm very visual. So I will write characters and scenes and even snippets of dialogue on on index cards and then you can kind of lay them out and you can change the order if you need to change the order. Um, 
so eventually the story will start playing kind of like a movie in my head. But um, I'm also a writer who does multiple drafts until I get it right. For me, it wasn't until I learned how to rewrite and not to fall in love with your first drafts and, and not expect your first drafts to be ready to be published. When I finally um, understood that, that's when I was able to finish things and my writing kind of took off. Um, I love rewriting. That's my happy place. So I kind of get tortured through first drafts until, until I have it down, until I'm close to the word count that the final book needs to be. And then I get to play and make each scene better if I can. That's great. Rosemary? So we're very lucky in that Kensington does consult us on copy cover. I mean, I've published with St. Martin's Press and Doubleday in addition to Kensington. And once I sent the manuscript in and, and did the, the changes that they requested, that was it until the book hit the bookstores. But, Kens but Kensington does send us the cover copy. And I know one time I got cover copy, and I didn't like the cover copy, and I rewrote it and sent it back to John. So this time when he sent me the cover copy for the book number nine, I think it is, um, he said, Rosemary, please don't rewrite the cover copy, but just give me your suggestions. <laughs> so... Yeah, okay. so when you're writing uh, murder mysteries, there's people who read murder mysteries expect certain things, and you had better deliver this. So it helps to, when you're writing a series, you really have a blueprint because your contract says, my contract says 90 to 100,000 words. All right, that's, so I have to come up with a manuscript that's 90 to 100,000 words. Halfway through, I have to have a great big something or other. So that's at 45,000 words. Halfway from the beginning to the big thingamajiggy, I have to have some little thingamajiggies. Um, and I found out after I'd written the first those book. Those are technical terms. Those are technical <laughs> terms. Absolutely technical terms. I found out after I'd written the first book in the series that my voice and the, the series and so forth does very well with chapters that are about 2,500 words each. And so I take my... 90 to 100,000 word contract and I split it up and I've got you know chapters of 30 some odd chapters of 2,500 words each. I happen to be a spreadsheet freak. I live by spreadsheets. Um, and so I, I know what's going to happen. I know the beginning, the middle, and the end. And then when I sit down to write, I usually write out the chapter in you know, paragraph form. And I'm brainstorming basically what I want to happen in that particular chapter. And um, that's in black type on my computer. And as I write the chapter, if I've done something from the mini outline I've created, I go back and I put I put that in red so that when I go back, I can see, oh, did I actually follow the outline? Most of the time, it's like 50%. But it gets me started. And then when I write every day, I read what I've written the previous day, and as I'm reading that through, I'm making small changes in wording, in a sentence length, and so forth. So I'm actually doing a second draft, but I'm also going into um, a first draft of the next thing. I really basically write one draft um, in the sense that I know people will write a whole first draft and then go back and do it. I don't. I am constantly editing as I'm going along. And it usually works um, so far. And that's, that's how I do it. My next question for you is, you've all written a number of books. You have um, a business of credit behind you, literary credit. What do you know now about publishing that you wish someone had told you when you were first starting out? 
that it was going to take a really long time to make money at it. <laughs> <laughs> like if somebody had told me it was going to take me 15 years to like actually make money at it, I, I would have cried. Well, I did anyway every time I got my royalty checks. But yeah, I... I or that you may never. I mean, you know, a lot of writers have second jobs. I've always had a second job until a couple years ago. Um, but it was also a good reminder to do it because you love it. So if you're, if you're thinking, oh, my first book is going to be a runaway bestseller and I'll quit my day job, you know, that's just a lot of people have that fantasy and that's just not what most of us have that experience. So I wish I would have known. Maybe I don't wish I would have known that, but... That is a big part of the publishing world. This isn't exactly, well, yeah, this isn't exactly the publishing world, but for for something I wish someone had reminded me of is, is just enjoy every step of it. Um, I, I happen to love writing first draft, and I also love all the revisions that I have to do because I don't plot. Um, but and and it's work, but it's 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 great to remember that you love it, right? Not to get so caught up in doing the work that you forget how much you love writing, um, and to celebrate celebrate the achievements. I finished the first draft. Mm -hmm. I got the book off to my editor by my deadline. Mm -hmm. You know, my tenth book came out. Like when my tenth book came out, I had a tenth birthday party. And I made a cake at home, and I made little flags on toothpicks of all the covers of the ten books in that series. Maybe it was the tenth book in a in the country store series. I celebrated it, and I had a glass of champagne with it, and I took a picture, and I, you know, gave it, sent it around to my fans. Like, the, celebrate those milestones, um, and and yeah. And another thing I didn't realize was how wonderful the crime fiction writing community is. I mean, people, we're all writing about people who do bad things, but um, nobody is nicer and more supportive than my fellow authors and those that sort of came before and mentored me as I was coming up. And now I can mentor other people as they're coming up and write cover blurbs and stuff. Um, it's fabulous community, Sisters in Crime especially. Yeah. I'm trying to think of something I didn't know about publishing. Uh, one, we always have to remember that it is a business. And uh, you may have the most wonderful idea in the world. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I learned a long time ago, I'm a medievalist. Okay, at a, at a party when someone introduces you and they say, what do you do? I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a this, I'm a that. Um, I specialize in this medieval historiography. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anyway, but I'm a writer now, which is a little bit different. Um, first of all, that it is a business, and we deal with agents and, and editors, and so I can send a, an idea for a, a book. My agent always says the first rule is don't write a book unless you talk to your agent, because that's important. So I can send something to her, and I think it's wonderful, and she'll write back and say, nope. Nobody's interested. Or the market isn't there. And your agent is only, your agent's reputation is only as good as the most recent book the agent has submitted to a publishing house. 
If an agent submits over and over again manuscripts that really aren't sellable or aren't very good, that publishing house is pretty soon not going to want to accept anything from that particular agent. So it, you, it, you have to write what you want to write. I write what I really love reading. And, but I have plenty of things that haven't sold yet. I'm waiting for everybody to become fascinated with the 12th century. <laughs> Once you all become fascinated with the 12th century, I'm off. You know, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Um, it, it's, it's a combination of business and art. And it's a really, really um, interesting combination. I came at this really late in life, and I went from, you know, business of finance to a creative industry. Um, so nobody had to tell me to enjoy it. You know, I felt like if I don't enjoy this and if I'm not writing what I want to read, I'll stop. But I, I will echo that I wish I had known about the writing community and in particular the mystery writing community. Sisters in Crime, they have a whole group called the Guppies. Who knew? This was, I mean, these are unpublished writers who just get together to learn how to write crime. Like, wow. And how to query agents, the whole business of it. I wish I had known about that. Um, Mystery Writers of America, I wish I had known about them, too. I now belong to, like, everything that you can belong to because they are great groups, and it is wonderful to be able to give back to people who are just starting out and also to learn from those who are way ahead of you. The, the community is just so warm and welcoming. You would not think that from people who spend all day thinking of crimes, thinking of ways to kill people. But it's, it's a great group of people. I wish I had known that. That would have been great, uh, not so lonely a trip to get to publication. You've all been so fascinating. But before we run out of time, let's see if we have any questions from those in the audience. Any questions for our authors? Yes, you can, because I have mastered the art of dropping little hints from previous books so you know who the characters are. And that's you try to avoid it. We call it an info dump, and then you've all read a book where all of a sudden the story stops and the author abruptly says, well, so-and-so and so-and-so was born in such-and-such and has blue eyes and blah, 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 and it goes on and on and on. So, yes, you could read them out of sequence. Um, in theory, it's probably more enjoyable if you don't, but you definitely can. <laughs> well, I've done it myself. I've picked up a book that's midway through somebody's series and fallen so much in love with it that I want to go back and, and I start the series again. Yeah. How do you nail the dialogue? Your dialogue is exceptional. It's very snappy, but it also is this this incredible combination of very period specific and and being contemporary too. I mean, it doesn't lock you out mm -hmm. of you know since we're not you know in the 1890s. Right. It doesn't lock you out of, of the way they speak to each other. Is it is it just talent? I mean, how how did you manage to do that? I, I think it's probably uh, repetition. You know, I do many, many drafts. <laughs> and so as I go through each draft, I am kind of tightening the dialogue or saying, you know, that just, just sounds too archaic. That might be what they'd say, but that's nobody's going to want to read that. So I'll kind of switch things around. But um, I don't know, may I just have an ear for it? 
But uh, you and, and reading it out loud, that's if you want an ear for it, just read it out loud and that will really help too. Let me piggyback on that because Diane and I are both historical novelists and as we read the original material, the memoirs and the letters and so forth, we fall into the rhythm of that speech. And if you go right from reading your research into writing, you're even though you not, may not realize it exactly, you're bringing that rhythm with you. I have gone to the store after doing some research or doing some writing and started speaking that way. <laughs> Shall I buy this? Or, you know, I mean, just it takes a while to shake it. And the clerk is saying security. <laughs> Who are you? Other questions? It is very genre oriented, um, more than I realized when I first start writing. So I've written in other genres. I think other writers up here have too, um, but under a different name. So if you're writing in a completely different genre, unless you're like Stephen King and they're going to buy whatever you write or John Grisham, then you keep your name because that's going to draw people. Um, but what happens in the publishing world, if you write a completely different genre, they want a different, that's that's one of the reasons where pen names come about. It's because it's, you know, my editor was like, just tell people it's apples and oranges, which <laughs> never made sense to me. And I tell people that and they just look at me like it doesn't make sense to them. But it's just different, you know, categories and they it's very much branding and you know like she was saying it's a difference between like the meld between art and business and it can be tricky but yeah um, I've written contemporary fiction and some romance novellas and that's not under Carleen O'Connor uh, Mary Carter <laughs> and I've written two big standalones one is uh, the fourth crusade which is in 1204 they're out of print but, you know, I'm, I've got my rights back. What I might do is self-publish them to get them back in print. And then the other was uh, is written in um, uh, Paris during the Nazi occupation. And then I'm writing the 1890s, Gilded Age Mysteries. So the two standalones were straight historicals, not mysteries, and then the mystery series. So I'm hopping genres, but I'm still staying in historical. Mm. And I've only written crime fiction, but I've written seven books in a historical series, The Quaker Midwife Mysteries, uh, set in the late 1800s. And um, two books, The Lauren Rousseau Mysteries, which are more traditional mystery. They're not as cozy. Um, and I also write a lot of short stories. And some of those are not cozy mysteries. And it's, it's really fun as a change of pace. Um, to write a story that's darker or from the point of view of the bad guy. And I can actually use swear words in a short story that completely verboten in a, in the kind of cozy mysteries that I write. Um, but I haven't written short, you know, ro romance or science fiction or anything like that. I'm just, that doesn't have to do with publishing. I'm just not interested in writing that. That's exactly what I was going to say. I don't want to. This is, I, I write what I love to read. It's my favorite genre. I don't think I could write historical romance, although I could write straight historical, I think. But um, right now, one book a year is all I can really do. So unless I stop what I'm doing, I can't do something else. So, Other questions? 
That's a good, that's a great question. Um, I have ended, let's see, voluntarily I have ended two series and my publisher ended one series. Um, so for the, if the publisher ends it, it's, it's, it's a business proposition and I wasn't those, the local foods mysteries weren't making enough money for them. Um, I ended my Quaker Midwife Mysteries for the same reason. They weren't making enough money. People who love them, love them very, very much. But there weren't quite enough of those people. Um, and so I ended that. Um, and happily ever after. Happily ever after, absolutely. So when you, like, I ended, I wrote the last book in the Quaker Midwife Mysteries knowing I was going to end the series. And I left everybody in a good place. And I was happy if, if by some chance I wanted to restart it, I could. And when I was writing the fifth Local Foods Mystery, I didn't know if they were going to end the series, but I suspected they were. And again, I left everybody in a good place. All the regular characters were at the farm with Cam, and people were in a good place. And I've, I didn't burn any bridges. If they'd given me another contract, I... I I could easily have gone on writing them, but I, I felt good if it ended, and it did end. Um, right now, I'm contemplating ending one of my ongoing series. So in my Cozy Capers and the Book Club Mysteries and the Country Store Mysteries, I have one book left in on the contract for each of those. And I'm considering, because I write three or more books a year, and I'm actually tired of working that hard. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I love what I'm doing, I'm living my dream, but that's a lot of work. And then there's all the promotion that goes along with it when each book comes out, and there's a lot. So I'm trying to figure out which series to end. <laughs> so uh, I haven't, t don't tell John. No. Don't tell John. You do realize we're taping. He's not going to like it. <laughs> and my fans aren't going to like it, but tough. Um, I haven't ended anything yet, but um, when, you have, when you have books under contract, there's a limit to how many, and you never know if they're going to extend you another offer. You don't know when you're writing books. You don't. Yeah, you don't. So it might be a matter of, if it is the last book, uh, give it back. Give me that manuscript back so I can wrap things up. But you always, I think, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, how could I end this? How could it, could you really put a period on that series? So um, I'm not there yet, but. Like I said, you just never know. So it's always kind of circulating in your mind. And I think the idea is just to kind of wrap it up so that you leave your readers happy, con satisfied, maybe not happy. <laughs> Anyone else? No? We all kind of flinched when you said kill off the main character because <laughs> I could just imagine the emails for the rest of my life. Um, yeah, I same thing. I, I had one book um, contract that was a two-book contract, and you just don't know if it's going to be renewed. And that was my Home to Ireland series. And although that wasn't renewed as novels, um, 
I also write novellas for Kensington, and he's had me use the same characters in that series because people have said, oh, we want the series back, and it's it's not coming back as full novels, but comes back that way. I have a long-running series, The Irish Village Mysteries, and book 10 will be coming out in February, and I definitely want to know when that ends because, like, I want to make sure that I write the last book exactly how I want it and, you know, how I, where I want the characters to go. Um, and I have no idea when that will be because, you know, a lot of series at Kensington's are really long running. Um, it just, you know, depends on how they're selling. And, and so I keep thinking about that. Like I'm not ready for that series to end either, but I, I don't know yet how I will end it, but it would be nice to have some official, like, okay, this is the last book and know it and purposefully write it that way. Yeah, and I, January 1st, I'll start book 10 of this series. And in, somewhere deep inside of me, it's saying, this is the end. This is going to be the last book. So sometime in the next few weeks, I have to come up with three or two or th maybe three 250 to 500 word synopses for three more books, which I'll get and send to my agent, who will then send them on to my editor, who will take them to the sales meeting, where they'll say, uh, 10 books in this series is enough. I mean, that, you know, so let's not do that. And then I'll know. But I'm the 10th book, because I have a feeling that that's probably where the series is going to end. So the 10th book, I'm finally letting the protagonist, one male, one female, get married. Uh, you know, I'm, it's been going on forever and ever and ever. It's in the 1890s, so and they're respectable people, so there hasn't been a lot of sex. And my readers keep saying, "Come on, you know, this is ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous." Um, but one of the things that I don't know about the rest of you, we don't do real. T I don't do real time. So even though I write one book a year, the first book. I think took place in March of 1888. The second book took place a few months later, but I wrote it a year later. So um, let's say I started March of 1888, and this is February of 1891, and it's the eighth book. So, you know, do, do the math. We see. Any other questions? I had a question regarding my format, because I'll get pick up a book and obviously like the series and then I'll look for some of the earlier books and they'll be paperback only or library binding only. Is it just a matter of the anticipation of sales that makes it go hardback or how does that work? I do think anticipation of sales is a big one. And once it comes out in hardback, um, unless you go back to reprintings, once the paperback comes out, you know, the hardbacks are gone once they sell out or you have to, you know, buy them used somewhere. Um, so I do know that aspect of it as well. Yeah, I was looking for a hardcover copy of my first book. And I finally gave up and asked my editor, and he says, oh, no, <laughs> they're not going to find them. So once they do come out in paperback, that's where they'll continue to reprint. So, and I think it's, it's a money thing. Yeah, and they've gone, they, do you remember the mass market paperbacks? They were really small. There's, there's still some here. Yeah, that's a mass market paperback. And most of the major <laughs> publishing companies have gone to a, a larger format for paperback. And your contract will state which this the sales, it's the sales publicity group that makes the final decisions. So my books used to come out in hardcover, softcover, 
approximately one year later, and then the audio and the large print about the, the audio and the large print came out at the same time as the hardcover. So now they're coming out in hardcover only, no paperback, but digital wow. ebooks. So it's it's hardcover ebooks and audibles, um, and that they're skipping. They're, they're tending to skip that middle section because of the ebook sales are so big. And they make so much money off the ebook sales. And you know, you're not talking, you're not printing, you don't have paper, you don't have ink, you don't have any of that stuff. Um, so that's the direction they seem to be moving in. Um, my um, my two ongoing cozy series are in are in small paperbacks, mass market paperbacks. For a couple of years, they went to something called Mass Max, which was a slightly larger small paperback. I loved it. It was easier to hold and easier to read. And then they went back to the small mass market. Um, but for this new series, they offered it to me in hardcover. And I think it's because my other series are doing so well that I have a a lot of very convicted fan, confirmed fans. They're not convicts. <laughs> Convinced fans um, who they thought would committed fans. Thank you. They would follow me to the hardcover. Um, so far, I don't know about the sales on this hardcover. They have not been spectacular, but. Well, it's still early days. It's early <laughs> days. It only came out a month ago. And libraries want the hardcover. Libraries want the hardcovers. We all make more money by the, from the hardcovers. So, um, Yeah. And then it will, I believe it'll come out a year later in paperback, but I haven't, that hasn't been confirmed. But they always come out in ebook, same day as the hardcover. And if they sell to audio, and these have all sold to audio um, at the same time. Um, about ebook sales, so many of our readers are in the silver hair, um, you know, age group. And a lot of people find it a lot easier to read on a Kindle or a or an e-reader because they can enlarge the font. And I think that's part of the explanation for the e-book sales being so large. Um, people like to enlarge the font and sometimes it's hard to hold a book if you have an arthritic hand and so forth. So, I think I'm gonna jump in with just one thing because um, cozy, cozy, both cozy and dark. Both cozy and dark. And I write what's called historical noir. So I have had um, communication from readers who have said very indignantly, I bought your book and it wasn't a cozy. <laughs> no, it's not. I write historical noir. There's a lot of blood and guts and things like that. So just a warning. <laughs> I think we have time for one more question. Is there another question? No? Okay. Yeah. They really get in the way of the. You look forward to their, to their input. Did everybody hear? On how much of their input is like, we'll do it. <laughs> you want to repeat that? So the question is the relationship between the writer and their editor and agent. Is it a good one or a bad marriage? Well, I've got the mic. Okay. Um, I have a fairly hands-off agent. Some people's agents read their book and edit their book before it goes to their editor. Mine doesn't. 
He gets me the contracts and he takes his share and he sends me my royalty statements. Do we have the same agent? John Talbot? Oh, no. Yeah. You have John Talbot? No. No. It's the same, same. attitude. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's, I could do the work to try to find another agent, but at this point, I'm just gliding with John. And that's fine. They're all called John, by the way. Our editor, my agent, <laughs> um, one of my sons. <laughs> um, my editor, I like working with him a lot. He's very responsive. You send him an email within 30 seconds, you get a response almost. It might be, got it, I'll look at that tomorrow, or I'll get back to you by the end of the week. But he always responds. Um, he, I don't know about you guys, but I, he, doesn't, he doesn't go deep into his editing of my manuscript. It's a fairly high level kind of look at it. And sometimes it's, looks good, no changes. In recent years, I get a lot of my manuscripts back. I don't have to change anything. Sometimes it's, well, you referred to that thing in her background several times, but you never showed us, told us what it was, and I'd like you to do that between pages 230 and 350, where it fits, wherever it fits, like that kind of high level. Um, and missing periods. So he'll go micro and macro, but nothing in between. But I, 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 I enjoy working with him. For the most part, uh, I do what he asked me to do, and some, you know, sometimes can you write a novel, another Christmas novella? I can do that. So then I'm fitting a novella in with my other three books. Um, can you include this character, not that one? Yeah, I can do that. That's sort of my mantra with John. Yeah, I would say the same thing. They're the biggest involvement, obviously, the cover and titles and cover copy, and they want to know the what's it about ahead of time. The actual editing process um, is pretty light, um, unless, you know, I'm sure maybe for, it's different for each writer, but we all have John um, and different for each editor. Sometimes I wish I had more edits um, from him, but they edit so many books. Like they just don't have time. Like gone are the Max Perkins editor days, you know, where they can completely transform or bring your book up to a new level. Um, my sister is a TV and screenwriter and oh my gosh, the notes she gets, like it's, it's too much the opposite direction. You know, she'll get just, and she'll get notes from the studio that are different from, you know, the producer and you know that can be I've seen how stressed she gets especially when she gets opposite notes at the same time or they'll just say something like make me cry more you know like I think um, we have it pretty easy compared to what she goes through in the editing process yeah and I think it depends if you're writing a series they come to trust you um, so the first book the first and second books in this series um, my agent wanted a lot of, of rewriting because she wanted to sell it as soon as she put it out there. She wasn't going to put it out there unless she was positive she could sell it. So I did almost maybe six months of like three different edits, changing scenes, doing this and that. When she sent it out, she sent it out to, I think, five houses. We got an offer within two days. We wouldn't, that wouldn't have happened if my agent hadn't known the market, known the mystery genre, in which she specializes, and caught all the things that I didn't catch. After those first two books, I send my agent a 250 to 500 word synopsis of what I want to write, and she sends them on to Kensington, and they send me a contract. 
And my agent hasn't really seen any books since book two, basically. And they, they start to trust us after a while. Yeah. That's what I was thinking, too. Um, editorially, same as these guys. Um, my agent, if I were writing standalone mysteries where she would have to sell each one separately, she would have a lot more input on it. She'd take me through edits. But I have a three-book contract. It's really between me and my editor for book two and three. And then when she wants to sell, you know, when I want to sell another uh, book for another group of contracts, she'll get more involved in then too. But it's it's a good partnership. It's not really that they get in the way at all. They're, everybody's trying to make the book better. And you really want to have a good agent. And over and over again, we've heard in all kinds of seminars and from people, a bad agent is worse than no agent at all. Because a bad agent will get in the way, uh, will not sell your work, will tie it up. Uh, if you are a aspiring writer and you're looking for agents, you never, ever, ever pay anybody to read your manuscript. Yeah. Ever, no. ever, ever, not one penny. They pay you. You do not pay them. If they ask for a payment, it's a scam. Run. Yeah. On those words of wisdom, I think we probably... <laughs> Should conclude, I'd like to thank our authors today, Rosemary Simpson, Carlene O'Connor, Maddie Day, and Diane Freeman. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.